0: So the the center point of Malachi and what we're going to look at today is, is really the subject of love. And to understand Malachi any other way is to miss it. It's to miss the book. If you miss love in Malachi, you're lost. And you're going to be lost in terms of Ridgecrest for about five weeks because that's how long it's going to take us to walk through this book. And I was thinking about the subject of love this week and an odd thing happened to Valerie and I in, in terms of this discussion of love. Uh, when we were deciding where we wanted to serve, uh, I was getting ready to graduate seminary. We uh, were able to take a, I don't know what you want to call it, a vision trip or a, hey, I really want to go see Europe and we're thinking about serving in Prague trip or whatever you want to call it. But we went we met with the guy who would be our team leader in Prague and so met he and his wife. And, and, and try to be gracious and loving towards them. And so we're sitting in this burger joint in Old Town Prague, which you've, if you've never been there, it's just gorgeous. Burger joint, not so much, but Old Town Prague, really, really nice. And we're sitting there, and I'd gotten to know this guy in, in a couple of emails and then, you know, 20 minutes of conversation. We are just kind of, you know, where are you from? Which sports teams do you like? This type of stuff catching up. He says, is the U.S. still there? I'm like, yes, I just came from there. He says, okay, I'm a missionary. I get a little disconnected sometimes. And so we're going through and we're talking about this stuff, and he and I are just having a casual conversation, and Valerie and his wife are just, I don't even know, they're in the, their own world in this booth talking. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he turns to her and he says, Valerie, let me ask you a question. Why do you love your husband? I was a little bit caught off guard. I mean, he and I are in the midst of conversation. Here he is, ending that abruptly, turning and interjecting, interjecting into the middle of the world that they've created for themselves, Valerie and, and this guy's wife. And so he asked her the question. He said, why do you love your husband? I'm pretty interested in this, this answer as well. <laughs> pretty interested in this answer as well. So she starts running down through this list. And I gotta be honest. She starts naming off these things. I'm thinking, who is this guy? I want to marry him. He's pretty fantastic. I wonder if we left him on the plane. I've never heard of this person anyway. I mean, so she's running through this list, and I'm thinking, I'm a pretty, I'm a good catch. If these things are true, she's lucky. <clears throat> So she gets to the end of the list, she's talking through it, and and he just stops, he pauses and he reflects, and he says the words, I will never forget. He said, Valerie, you've just described a golden retriever. (laughs) And I thought, you know, I've owned some labs, and they were pretty faithful. They were loyal. Anyway, and so we went through this whole deal. But you see, his understanding of love, when you describe it this way, what it conjured in his mind, this idea of faithfulness, of loyalty, of you know being very good at fetch, I guess, was a golden retriever. But today we see love spelled out in a decidedly different way in the book of Malachi. Let me read the first five verses for us, then we'll walk through this together. The prophet writes, he says, The oracle... Of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you. Let me read that again. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? And then this is God's response. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The prophet is writing likely sometime towards the end of Nehemiah's life or immediately following Nehemiah's life. And you see this over and over again in the book of Malachi. All the same things that Nehemiah rails on, Malachi does so in a much shorter format. Since the Israelites had been taken into captivity, By the Babylonians, they had been held there. and You'll remember that starting with Ezra and then Nehemiah, they started to come back. They started to rebuild, and things were getting better. Things were starting to come together. But they looked around. The land that had once yielded tremendous harvest wasn't doing that anymore. They looked at the state of Jerusalem. They looked at the state of the temple. They looked at the state of all the things around them. And in their minds, what it created was, it's not as good as it was. It's not as good as it should be. They were displeased. They were unhappy. And, and, and so they, they saw these things. They saw this state of, of how everything looked, of how everything lay, and And they begin to think, God doesn't really love us. God doesn't really love us. Because if he loved us, these things wouldn't be so. We remember the extravagance of Solomon. We remember what the temple looked like. We remember the expanding kingdom of David. If God loved us, these things wouldn't look like this. So God makes this declaration. He says to them, Look, I I recognize what your heart's problem is. See, the the Israelites were going around and they were doing things mechanically. The sacrifices continued, their understanding of who God is, it continued. And they thought by this mechanical adherence to the word of God, they could restore favor. So they gave, they didn't give well. They sacrificed, they didn't sacrifice well. They worshiped, but they didn't worship well. But they saw in their minds that they were upholding all the things God was calling them to. But when God says to them, when when he looks at them, when he beholds them, when he cups their face in his hands and says to them, I love you, they respond incredulously. You've got to be kidding. You, you, you've you've got to be kidding. How have you loved us? And see, God's not just talking about this past display of love on them. He's not just talking, and, and when he says that I have loved you, and says, look, in the beginning when, when Abram was there, and you know I called him, and I changed his name to Abraham, that's when I loved you? He's not just describing this time when David's kingdom was growing or when Solomon's kingdom was expanding that that is the locus of his love but what he's describing is I have loved you eternally. Presently. And into the future. I loved you then, I loved you now and I will love you forevermore. They can't accept that. They can't accept this love that he's he's describing to them. Man, some of us find ourselves in the exact same place. We look at our lives, maybe you know that you've been saved, you've surrendered your life to Christ, he has come in, he has redeemed you, he has restored you, he has reconciled you to himself. But you question that. Because you look at your life, the state of what it is, and you say, do you really love me? Look how God shows the Israelites the truth and the veracity of his claim. Their question is, how have you loved us? They want proof that God has really loved them. They want proof that God really loves them. And he gives them that exact thing. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? He asks them a pretty obvious question. There weren't there many who would have gotten this question wrong. I said, well, yeah, he is, of course. Esau's Jacob's brother. God responds, he says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. End of two and the beginning of three. Now we're getting into some different areas here. You and I need to look back we need to unpack a little bit to understand the weight of what God has just told them. Take your Bibles and flip over with me to Genesis 25. When God tells them, in essence, that he loved Jacob, but he hated Esau, he's saying something, he's pulling on hundreds of years of history. Hundreds of years of history occur in that one snapshot. And if they miss this, And if you and I miss this, we could continue to be lost on the trajectory that is laid out for us in the book of Malachi. In 25, we see that that, that how these things begin to be. We see the birth of Jacob and Esau. Now look, starting in verse 19, he says these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham, father to Isaac. And Isaac worked for 40 years, and he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? She essentially said, look, I'm pregnant, and this is terrible. Why is this thing going on? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She started praying. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. God declares, the older shall serve the younger. Well, you remember the rest of the story. She gives birth to the two children, and one of them is just covered with red hair. We're giving Bryce a haircut yesterday and his hair's falling all over his legs and I'm thinking, this is what Esau looked like. (laughs) I say, how are you? He says, itchy. So Esau is is covered in, in red hair. The word Edom sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for red and that's kind of how these things are worked out and you see this color show up over and over again in the narrative for Esau. Esau, we find out, is an impetuous man. He's a hunter, and for those of you who are, you read that and with a sense of joy, you say, look, hunting is popular in the Bible. And you read about Jacob, and it said, Jacob dwelt in tents, and you think, man, he's back there with the tents. Esau's out there hunting. This is the guy I want. But you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. You might want him, but in terms of what is right and good, and considered respectable in the eyes of the Old Testament, Jacob was doing the more noble thing. Now, he does some other things that are not so noble. He convinces his brother to sell his birthright for a bite of soup. Esau comes in, he's so impetuous, Jacob's got this stew, which must have been the world's greatest red stew because of the price that he labels it. Esau comes in, he says, oh man, I've been hunting all day and I am dying! what is that delicious smell? Jacob says, well, you know this, this is my delicious red stew. You can't get this for three counties. Esau says, brother, I have got to have some of that stew. Jacob looks at him and says, have I got a deal for you? So what does he sell it for? He sells it for his birthright. Esau responds in verse 32, chapter 25. He says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Esau, clearly given to exaggeration. He's a little bit hungry. and our house, that's referred to as the hungry grumpies. And he comes in, and he is, he's, he's famished. He's, he wants to give it up. And so when this is extended to him, he says, what use is this to me? What benefit is to me if I die right here of hunger? So Jacob says, well, give it to me. Recognize that Esau is the older, that he is the one that should rightly receive the blessing from his father, that he is the one who should rightly receive the most money, the most material benefit from his father. And Jacob is working that out of him, taking that from him. And we begin to see a division and a distinction. You remember Jacob gets that and he goes back to the land of his mother to find a wife. He comes back and he is terrified of his older brother, isn't he? I mean, he, he thinks of Esau and, and Esau behind that red hair has red horns and he's terrified and he thinks Esau's gonna come take everything away from him to kill him and so he sends out and he wants to put the women and the children first. He says, surely he wouldn't do damage to women and children. So he sends them out. Recognize that when he finally meets Esau on the road, Esau embraces him, that they live side by side until the land could no longer sustain them, and then they begin to separate. Now look, I've got a brother. He's six years older than me, and he lives in Houston. And When we grew older, we separated by distance. He took a job in one place, I took a job in somewhere else, but we still maintain contact, Right? These guys still have communication back and forth, but as time goes on, as generation turns into generation, as fathers die and sons grow old, they weren't just brothers separated. They were nations separated. Jacob becomes Israel, and the whole nation begins to grow. Esau becomes Edom, and his nation begins to grow. Now, Jacob's nation was a nation of people set apart to be a blessing in Esau's nation. They still fell under that same blessing from Abraham. But the whole path, the whole course, the whole chart of his lineage, of his family is decidedly different. They're doing things that bring them riches. They're doing things that satisfy them. They're doing things that build them up. And so God looks at it and he declares, I chose Jacob. I didn't choose Esau. The Israelites look at it and they say, how have you loved us? God says, I chose you. You weren't born. You weren't alive. I chose Jacob. You want to recognize love in your life? God chose you. That's what he's telling you. You want to question whether or not I love you, Israel? I chose you before you were. Where did I choose you? I chose you in Jacob. I didn't choose Esau. That's what he did. Now look at how this relationship between Jacob and Esau develops. In Numbers 20, Numbers 20 recounts the Israelites as they're on the exodus and they're working their way through the land and they come to the border of Edom and they send a dispatch to the king. And and, and they remind him of their, their closeness. They come up to him and effectively say, look, we are cousins in Numbers 20, 14, they said, look, we're cousins. You remember Jacob, your brother. Man, we just want to walk through your land. We're not going to take any of your stuff. We're not going to touch any of your stuff. We're not going to, we're not going to glean from your fields. All we want to do is walk through your land. How does Edom respond? Does he think fondly back to the, the familial connection there? Does he think fondly back to, to reunions of the family? Says the king mounts up with all his soldiers and all his men, and he goes out to them. He says, "You surely shall not pass through the land. Animosity exists between Jacob and Esau, between Israel and Edom. We see that here in Numbers twenty, where Jacob has and his people have sought to be the people set aside by God. Edom has sought to be the people for their own destiny, for their own provision." For their own success. And it just gets worse. It just gets worse. See, we read here in about Edom and Malachi, and it says, Look, I've loved Jacob, Esau, I hated. And you look at that and you say, How is that fair? How is that fair? That God would choose one and not choose the other. But continually, over and over and over again, we see how Esau responds. We see how the line of Edom responds. The Babylonians come in, they sack Jerusalem, they take everybody captive, but some people manage to escape. Esau, through Edom, comes down, and they come up to the Babylonians and they say, Hey, friend, you miss these guys over here? These guys are Israelites. These guys over here are Israelites. Don't let them escape. And that's why we see the letter of Obadiah. Obadiah, if you have time this afternoon, you can read through it. All it is is a word of rebuke to Edom for their behavior with the raid of the Babylonians. Look at verse 10 in Obadiah. I'll just read a section of this. He says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Esau's not innocent. Edom's not free of guilt. They are working. For the persecution, they are working for the destruction of Israel. So God writes this. He says, Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. Chose Jacob, I didn't choose Esau. Esau was continually at war, at beating down Israel. But look at how this works. Before he chose the two of them. Flip over to Genesis 12. Genesis 12. This is what God says. One and two. now Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He effectively comes to this guy and says, You need to leave everything you know. You leave your family, you leave your hometown. And you go to the land I will show you, effectively saying, you don't know where it is yet. You just get up, grab your stuff, grab your people, and go. For what purpose? Verse 2 He said, I will make you a great nation. I'm going to build you up. You're going to have lots of people that follow your lineage. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you stuff. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you renown. I'm going to give you fame. For what purpose? that you will be a blessing. He says, I'm going to build you up. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God didn't choose Jacob to build Jacob up just to make him be better than his brother. Going on with the same stream of thought, God chooses Abraham, God chooses Jacob. In salvation, God chooses you. He does it for a reason. So that you could be a blessing to those around you. God has built them up so that everybody that sees them would recognize there is something decidedly different in them so that they would come to Israel and say, why are you protected? Why do your crops succeed when ours fail?" Why do your women give birth when ours are barren? And they come into Israel and they say, why are these things so? And they would say, because God, the Lord, makes it so. It wasn't that they were inherently better. It wasn't that they were inherently good. It was because God chose a people to reveal himself to everyone else through. It's this is amazing display of love. They say, how have you loved us? And God says, how have I not loved you? I chose you when you were unlovable. I worked for your protection. I worked for your continued life. I rebuked you and led you into exile. I brought you back when you had learned your lesson. I convinced a foreign king to allow your walls to be rebuilt. I convinced a foreign king to allow your temple to be restored. How have I loved you? I loved you from the day I created you. I brought you out of slavery. I gave you a land that you had no right to. God is reminding them. When he goes with the route of Jacob and Esau, God is pointing to the fact that God has loved them, not because they deserved it, but because he chose them. And they've completely forgotten about them. Not, they're not living their lives in accordance with the calling of God, which is to be a blessing, to recognize God's love and provision in their life so that they might turn around and bless those around them. When they think of God's love in their life, they think about how it could be manifested selfishly just in their lives. How it could be manifested selfishly just in their lives. And so God goes in and he, he describes this. He describes it to us in the apostle Paul. He says, the scripture foreseeing, Galatians 3.8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all nations shall be blessed. In you all nations shall be blessed. Who? Is it just Israel? Paul doesn't seem to think so. God goes to Abraham. He teaches him. He is pouring out his spirit into him. And he's raising him up for what purpose? I mean, it's to be a blessing. Moves on down a generation. And he comes to, <clears throat> He comes to Jacob. And he raises him up. He chooses the younger. He chooses the more insignificant. He chooses the one that violates all conception. For what purpose? To be a blessing so that his people would be a blessing, so that his people would be set aside under the worship of God. God graciously elects, calls those people. But the question might exist in your mind, what about the Edomites? Is there no love? Is there no extension to them? If you flip over and you look at Deuteronomy three seven, God reminds them, he says, look, don't abhor, don't work selfishly against the Egyptian because you sojourn in his land. You need to allow provision for him. And don't feel the same way towards the Edomites. Why? Because they're your brother. God chose Jacob to be a blessing. Esau and Edom worked against the hand of God. They were attacking his people. And what did God do when they attacked? That's what we see here. God says, look, this is how I loved you. I not only protected you, but I went after those who attacked you. He says, I've laid waste to his hill country. Speaking of Edom. And I left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. Essentially, if Edom looks at the hand of God through whatever course he uses, and they look and say, look, the walls are destroyed, our houses are torn down, but it's okay. We're going to rebuild it. We're going to come back. We're going to fix this. The Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. God says, look, outside of me and my provision, this people is, and all of their activities are futile. Outside of me and my provision, these people and their activities will amount to nothing. Inasmuch as they continue to rail and militate against God, their provision, their action, their activities will amount to nothing. God writes and he says, look, you want to see how I've loved you? 150 years ago when you were going into exile and the Edomites were picking over what was left of your belongings that did not go without punishment, that did not go without God's righteousness being visited upon the Edomites. See, but there's good news. We read in here that he says, Look, your own eyes shall see this, verse 5, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God went to Abraham in Genesis 12. He called him out of this land. He says, I'm calling you out. I want you to be a blessing. I'm going to give you this stuff. I'm going to do these things for you for what purpose so that you'll be a blessing to everybody else. Paul writing about it in in Galatians 3.8 says, this was God preaching the gospel through Abraham to all those who would hear so that all nations might be blessed. God showed and displayed his love to the Israelites as recorded here by Malachi through his love, through his election love to them. Friends, God loves you too. He has poured out his love to you. He has lavishly displayed it before you. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, we read these words. He says, in you, speaking to the church in Colossae, speaking to us in our hearts, he says, who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. So he goes to them, he says, look, I want you to recognize that, that you weren't, God didn't save you because you were good people. Friend, he didn't he didn't save you because he looked at your life and he said, He's done enough good things. I think I can save this person. Here's something I can work with. He didn't save you because he looked at you and said, Well, this would be a decidedly easy thing to do. I can save Kelly a whole lot easier than I can save Glenn or Joe. So I'm gonna save him. He didn't say, Look, I'm gonna save Ben, but I don't know. This is just getting tough. He said they were all alienated and hostile in their mind, doing evil deeds. Verse 22 says, he is now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death. For what reason? To present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. God presents you to himself. That's how God loves you. He his love for you God gives us a picture that he is unfailing, unshakable, that all of these things continue into eternity. It's not because of how great we are. It's because of how good and how loving and how caring God is. John wanted us to understand this. So in 1st John chapter 4 he wrote these words to a community that was really struggling with this understanding of how these things work out and are visited in their lives. He says, you want to understand God, understand him this way. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. On the basis of what reason, John? He says, because God is love. God is love. He says, and this is the love of God. It was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. John looks at this whole situation. He finds a people in a similar predicament to those in Malachi, they'd suffered a great loss. They looked around them. They're struggling for how to understand, how to conceptualize God. And he says, God is love. And they say, how? They say, God saved you. Don't you ever forget that? He didn't just save you by dismissing sin, by kicking all to the side and saying, don't worry, it's all taken care of. He loved you. He took care of sin by offering a tremendous display of love. He sent his son to die for you, to suffer for you. Recognize that God's wrath had to be poured out on sin. And you think about that, and you think about it in terms of the the kind of out there. Think about it in terms of you and your life. Man, whether you struggle with pride, with gluttony, with hatred, with anger, with animosity, You've made success into an idol. You've made sex into an idol. Whatever thing that you're struggling with, whatever thing you're pursuing, instead of pursuing God, every hastily said word, every sideways glance, God had all that in mind. He had all of those things in mind when he sent his son to die for you. Sin is fine in our minds. When we think of sin, we think, God died for sins. That's, that's okay. Friend, God died for your sins. God died for your sins. God died for my sins. So when it comes to the subject of whether or not God loves you, I want you to think back over the sins you've committed this week think of some of the big things you'd really rather people not know. All the ways you've deceived people, all the things that, that you really just want to keep hidden, keep secret, and keep safe. That's what he died for. For the Christian, the question of whether or not God loves them It's one that he decidedly settled. You see, sometimes we struggle with the same thing. The Israelites in the days of Malachi looked around and they said, look, surely God cannot love us because we just don't see it. We just don't feel it. Malachi reminded them. God chose you. God preserved you. God preserves you still. This is how he displays his love. So I tell you today, God loves you with an unshakable love. There's nothing you can do to move that away. There's nothing you can do to diminish that. There's nothing you can do to limit the effect of that. Live your life in accordance with it. and quit holding back and believe that he loves you. Quit holding back and live in the reality of that love. Quit holding back and share that love with everybody around you. The story of Malachi is a story of God's unfailing love. The story of our lives is a story of lives transformed through love. How is that love changing you? How is that love changing everyone around you? Let me pray for us.